Wagwan people, it's your boy Mo, aka the Hoop Genius, and today, boy oh boy, do we have a special episode waiting for you. My regular co-host BJ Armstrong couldn't be here today, but coming in off the bench is the starting point guard for the Washington Wizards, the one and only Mr. Spencer Dinwiddie. We chopped it up, talking all things NBA, all things cryptocurrency, all things the future of social media, all things that you wouldn't expect from your typical NBA player. Spencer is taking things to a whole new level. So before we get into the podcast, make sure you subscribe, whether you're on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, wherever you are, subscribe right now because we're going to have plenty more episodes coming at you this season. Enjoy the show. Without further ado, it's the main man for the Washington Wizards, the new starting point guard. The franchise is going in a new direction. Mr. Spencer Dinwiddie, thank you for joining us and thank you for taking the time. How are you doing, my man? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me. Um, really appreciate your time. More than welcome, man. You're welcome on the podcast. Any Anytime you want, feel free to hit me up. The first thing is, you know, a bunch of guys in the NBA, Duncan Robinson, JJ Redick, obviously just retired, CJ McCollum, a bunch of NBA guys have got podcasts. You're one of the most interesting off-court personalities as well as being a star on the basketball court as well. I feel like people would really enjoy listening to you talking on a regular basis. Are we going to see a Spencer Dinwiddie podcast anytime soon? Um, no, unfortunately not. I mean, I'm a, I'm a guy that likes to uh, take his naps during the day. Um, I don't try to add uh, any more uh, tasks or chaos than necessary. Um, I've got a... a business in Galaxy and, and I play basketball. So those are my two things. And I, I keep those the main things business-wise. That's right. Well, the Galaxy stuff sounds like it's very exciting and it's an extremely, you know, revolutionary project. We're going to touch on that in a bit. So how was it being back on the court last night, getting back into action? It looked smooth. You put up a, a nice stat line. How has it yeah. been your journey back and joining the Washington Wizards as well? Um, it's been a whirlwind, you know, the last, uh, was it now 10 months or so since I got hurt. Um, it's been a lot, you know, I had to do the prehab stage, get, uh, you know, swelling out so I could have surgery. Then obviously everybody knows kind of about the rehab process. I was documented on my Instagram a little bit. Um, shout out to all the people that were involved with that. Um, you know, got cleared. The Nets lost though. So I didn't get to come back for the finals, continue the rehab and, and, just kind of training process as normal throughout the summer got signed obviously in what like the biggest sign trade in history in terms of pieces. Right. Um, got here training camp, you know, so it's just, it's been a ton, man. And, you know, I just feel overwhelmingly like blessed and grateful to be back on the court and be healthy and, and to start knocking the rust off and, you know, getting back on the bike. Now that, the Brooklyn Nets, who you were with before, had one of the most stacked rosters and they were everyone's favorite to go on and win the championship last year. What was it like having to watch that from the sidelines? How badly did you want to get back on the court, especially with the injuries to James and then Kyrie? What was it like, you know, what going through your mind watching all of that happen and watching Kevin try and carry the squad, knowing that how much you could help him if you were out there? Yeah, um, it was weird, man. Like, you know, you, you came into the season with one group. And we thought, obviously, we were going to win. Like, that was the plan from, from the gate, like championship or bust kind of. Um, you know, I get hurt. Some things happen. And then, obviously, we trade for James. We trade a lot of the pieces that I was accustomed to being around, like a lot of my friends and stuff like that. 
And I was already, uh, you know, in L.A. rehabbing the creep for the most part. So it's kind of like a like an interesting dynamic, right? Like I'm kind of away. I'm rehabbing. It's a different team, all that stuff. Um, and then right as I'm getting ready to try to kind of be integrated back into the team, obviously all the injuries are happening. I'm like, OK, like I, I got to get back, you know what I mean, like to help this push because, you know, if one of them are healthy, we probably still win. You know what I mean? But it's because half of it was a half a heart, you know what I mean? Versus like a full heart. And so, um, you know, it was, it was just tough, you know, and, and, and to have all that happen at the precise time that wouldn't allow for the flexibility to possibly give us the wins that, that we needed um, was hard to watch. Now, you, of course, were part of that five-team deal that saw you land with the Washington Wizards, but you were part of a sign-and-trade. So, obviously, you had to give the go-ahead on signing with the Wizards. Why Washington? Why was it the Wizards that was the team that was most attractive for you to go with? Um, I, I mean, I actually had a viral clip uh, about picking a college a while back. Yeah, I saw um, <laughs> I love the metaphor they used. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, for agency, it's kind of very similar. Um, you know, especially given like similar money, like you want to go to a place where, you know, they really believe in you. They really love you. Um, and also you have a certain rapport with, with their stars. So, you know, having, having a solid relationship with Brad, um, you know, the organization will love me and all that other stuff. And, you know, even embrace my, my crazy crypto stuff, uh, you know, it, it made it kind of a no brainer and, uh, it gives us a chance to do something special out here. That's right. You know, we're going to talk more about basketball in a bit, but you touched on it there with the crypto stuff. Let's go back to when you signed your contract extension in Brooklyn and you wanted to become the first NBA athlete to attempt to tokenize your playing contract, which was, I remember the sports media at the time, everyone's going crazy. I think most people didn't really understand that at the time. I think a lot of people thought you wanted to be paid in Bitcoins, but that wasn't what you were trying to do. Can you explain, you know, just for the fans who are kind of newer to this thing and, first getting their feet into the crypto situation, what you were trying to do with tokenizing your contract. Yeah. So the premise of kind of the, the crypto space, right, is decentralization. Yeah. Um, and then if you look at the entertainment industry, um, the, the value is the player, right? And the people that are paying for this value are, are the fans, right? So how can you decrease uh, this friction? You look at, uh, you know, and third, third parties do have, you know what I'm saying, their benefits. Like the NBA makes it very seamless for a fan to watch a game, right? But doesn't necessarily make it seamless for them to interact with us personally, which is also something that they want to do. Um, you look at sports gambling, you look at the way that people, you know, bet on stat lines and things like that. Like there's a need and a want and an urgency to just get inside the game more and more and more. So, you know, by democratizing your contract and allowing fans to, to get in um, in an in a investment capacity, right? It allows them to really ride the roller coaster of, you know, your playing career, really be invested in you. You know what I'm saying? And so it offers certain benefits to the athlete as well as the fan. Um, in terms of with the athlete, right, um, having this fan base in part obviously helps boost uh, your money-making potential. Like it's no secret, like people who sell the most jerseys, typically are, are allowed to kind of stay in the league a little bit longer than the ones that don't. Also, uh, the upfront capital can can do wonders for training purposes and all this other stuff. So there's benefits there for a fan, obviously, as, in terms of an investment. There's benefits to, you know, identifying a talent early and, and being right and betting on a penny stock per se, right? He blows up and becomes an all-star or superstar. Then, yeah, you know what I'm saying? You have a certain return on investment. So, you know, it's, it's a way to kind of 
just get even closer and in, in, in deeper inside of the game. Um, I wanted to do it on a somewhat smaller scale in terms of doing it with my contract because it's relatively uh, safe money. Um, obviously, the league had a lot of pushback about certain little triggers and bonuses and all this other stuff that was supposed to go on. But, um, you know, we, we still ended up pulling off like a very small kind of bond just to kind of prove the concept and, and, and prove that obviously the NBA wasn't going to sue me and kick me out of the league because that's one of the things that was like threatened at the time and people got all scared about. But it, it allowed to kind of set the stage for all the stuff that came next and Galaxy and all that other stuff. So, you know, I'm, I'm thankful and grateful for the experience. And, you know, sometimes when you're the first, you take bullets. Like it's just part of the game. You got to be ready for that. That's right, a pioneer in the crypto space when it comes to athletes. But you mentioned a little bit there about the bonuses in your contract. I had a tweet that went a little bit viral looking at your contract with the Wizards. I'm right in thinking that you get a 1.5 million bonus for playing 50 plus games this season, which is natural given that you're coming back from injury, but a $1 bonus for winning a championship. Yeah. What's, what's the thinking behind that? Can you, because I can't figure it out. Like winning an NBA <laughs> championship, surely you're playing. I don't know, like 10 mil for winning the championship, given that the Wizards aren't the favorite this season. Yeah. Um, no, so the way it was explained to me was there was a certain amount of like money, both guaranteed and non-guaranteed and all sorts of stuff that had to kind of be written in. And you had to give bonuses based on these certain tiers. So obviously with us not being the favorite, if you were to take all my bonus money and put it as a championship bonus, we may or may not get that. But taking basically all my bonus money and making it a 50-game bonus, I probably should get it. You know what I mean? If I do my job, I stay healthy, all the stuff that I'm supposed to do, um, I should get it. So really it was like the Wizards kind of throwing me a solid because they could have flipped it and did the 1.5 for the championship and the $1 for the 50 games, and I'd be sitting here like, man, come on. So if you guys do win the championship, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to frame the dollar? What are you going to do with that $1 that you get for your championship winning bonus? Um, shoot, my agent actually wants uh, it framed, but I think I would need a uh, Ted to sign it for sure, and not have to frame it. It'd be epic, hundred percent. You know, got a lot of innovative ideas. Um, and I saw an interesting piece you did with the Players Tribune about if you were commissioner for the day, and you mm -hmm. said you'd do the first round of the playoffs and the playing tournament in a centralized location like Las Vegas, and you would take. Uh, a percentage of all of the income that the city earns, you know, restaurant revenue and transport revenue, et cetera, whilst the event was going on there, which I thought was a pretty interesting concept. But if you were the commissioner and you could change any other rules, which rules or what else would be up there for you to change by the NBA right now? Right now? Uh... Oh, man. If, if Adam Silver rings you right now and says, Spencer, I'm, I'm going to be your, your magic genie, like in Aladdin, you can have three wishes right now to change in the NBA. What are the three things you're changing? Three things. Oh man, see, I don't know. That, that's that's actually that's actually really tough. I'm happy that they stopped the uh, the stop behind, uh, like jump backwards into you shot thing. Like oh, the tra it. the Trey Young shot, if we're gonna yeah. call it that. Yeah, like I absolutely couldn't stand that. It used to drive me up a wall. So I'm happy they changed that. Um, I hope the refs obviously don't take it too far because, like, getting fouls and things is part of the game. But, like, I, I just really hate it when guys, like, jump backwards. You know what I'm saying? And you'd be yeah. like, bro, like, what am I going to do? Uh, 
So that was a good one. Um, I'm trying to think of things that aren't in my Players Tribune uh, thing. Can we get back to that? I mean, I'm we'll, we'll, circle back. we'll circle yeah, we back. We'll circle back. We'll circle back. But in the meantime, let's talk about Galaxy, which is, you know, the Creator Galaxy Foundation that you, am I right in thinking you are the co-founder of? Yes. Um, you're the co-founder of it. And, you know, I could explain it right now using all the stuff in the press release, but I'd rather you explain it in terms that the fans are going to understand what you're trying to do in giving power back to creators. Yeah. Um. I mean, shoot, like, like think about some of what we already talked about in terms of uh, like trying to decrease friction between the player and the fan in the NBA arena, right? Um, that applies to anybody that has a community and a fan base. Um, furthermore, obviously, look at uh, what went on with, with Instagram and, and all that stuff going down in, in, a, in a centralized uh, manner, right? So we're trying to kind of decentralize social. So it's going to have like some of that Web 2 feel. So people are very familiar with that you know, cameo only fans, you know, uh, capability, the, the, the Twitter, Instagram type of interface. So people are very familiar with what you're going to see and how it's going to feel uh, in your hand. Um, but, but pretty much the premise is everybody has a community. It's about personal monetization. You start off with, like I said, familiar tools, uh, FaceTime calls, uh, video Dropbox, which is basically what only fans is, um, you know, paid follows, you know, if somebody wants to pay you a dollar to follow them or, or birthday messages, et cetera. And then it kind of scales into the future because once somebody has this social token and this social token has its own economy and can trade apples to apples for another person. So that means a Spencer, you know, can trade for uh, LeBron, can trade for, uh, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo can trade for the top Instagram model or, you know, whoever, everybody will have their own community. Right. Um, and you can trade apples to apples. Now you get into um, this next level architecture where social tokens have this real world value and utility. So going forward, that's kind of what we aim to do is to um, kind of liquefy this trapped capital in terms of like this personal trapped capital, the talent and all that other stuff that people are trying right now. So desperately to uh, monetize. And as the Instagram and social media game has uh, evolved, it's become harder and harder for, you know, that, social demographic to do that you know what i'm saying five six seven years ago you know if you had a hundred thousand followers brands would just throw money at you because they thought oh a hundred thousand followers means you got you know a bunch of people then people started buying followers so brands got smarter said oh it's not about that it's about your likes then people started buying likes then it was like we need to see your your like to follower ratio and your and the algorithms have to match up and you know if you have too many bots we're not going to pay you and so the money started drying up and drying up and now pretty much the only one uh, place that people make a lot of money is YouTube. But, you know, to go viral on YouTube, you got to you, you, you really got to kind of knock it out of the park. So it's you know, it's a it's a it's a it's a crazy game that we're playing. And, and some of these micro transactions that crypto will make possible will actually allow for greater monetization. And I'm saying it'll be a lot easier for somebody if the toolkit is there to pay their favorite Instagram model a, a dollar just to follow them on Twitter. And, you know, if they have 10,000, 20,000, 50,000, 100,000 fans. And they decide they want to follow them on, on Twitter, Instagram, whatever it may be, you know, then, then you can make that hundred thousand dollars like that they want versus hoping that Pepsi sees your, your uh, profile and, and, and gives you a, you know, brand deal. You know, so it's great for the consumer to create a relationship. I think that's something that's really missing. And that's what Twitter's tried to introduce recently with their tip jar that they have on your profile now. And you can pay to like super follow someone. 
Because I think that paid content is going to be the wave moving forward, given how popular things like OnlyFans were. But how do brands get involved? You know, say I'm on your platform, I'm on Galaxy and, and Mo's there talking about basketball, interacting with the fans. But then Air Jordan want to come along and say, Mo, we've got a new sneaker coming out. We want you to talk about this. Do they get involved through the same mechanism as the fans or is there going to be a separate route for brands to be involved with creators? It's a a separate route. So if you're familiar with the crypto ecosystem and you're familiar with kind of like airdrops and we kind of have a proprietary engine that um, is designed to make it very kind of point and click to where the brand can interact with the influencers fan base. So it's kind of like, obviously, again, pass through marketing, but um, it'll be, I'm trying to, figure out how to describe this without giving it away, but it'll just, it'll just be a very kind of seamless uh, pass through type of transaction. And um, it's designed so that everybody doesn't have friction in the process. The influencer gets what, what they design or they want out of it. The fan kind of gets these perks and bonuses just from being, you know, within that community and the, and the, obviously the brand um, starts to kind of spread out what they want to spread out to their targeted communities. Now, am I right in thinking my boy Dwight Howard is already involved? You've got a few other names. Who can people expect to see on the Galaxy app, you know, when things get going properly and start exploding? Have you got any other names down at the moment? Oh, man. I mean, we got 150 people, I think, signed up that have combined following over like 110 million um, on, on, the, on their socials. I mean, Dwight Howard's one of them. Ezekiel Elliott's one of them. I mean, we got a lot of basketball football because that's, you know, where our relationships uh, lead very seamlessly. But we have TikTokers and YouTubers and just it it varies. I mean, yeah, it varies. Like I'd have to get the list from, uh, you know, the guys and and, and run you down that list. That's what I'm sure the fans can go check it out. All the information is out there online. But I heard something interesting recently about the Galaxy app and yourself. I heard yeah. you were trying to get the Washington Wizards to have the Galaxy logo on their jersey as the sponsor. The Geico deal ran out for the little patch on the left shoulder of the jersey. What happened with that? Um, you know, uh, NBA, NBA be hate, honestly. Like, <laughs> I think he needs to do t-shirts with that on. Because I've yeah, heard like, you say that a couple times. Oh, man, it's just like at this point, that, that's one rule I would change, actually. Let's go. So that's rule number two. Okay. I think player to team or player to NBA deals should be cleared by a third party arbitrator. Like the NBA kind of rules with an iron fist and it's just kind of like stamp. No, you can't do it. Well, why can't I do it? Cause we said so. Well, that doesn't make any sense. You know what I'm saying? Now I, I complete transparency, right? You don't want cap circumvention or anything of that nature. Of course. So if the wizards were going to sell me the patch deal for a dollar, then yeah, no, that that's, that's wrong, right? Or sell my company yeah. the patch for a dollar, and that's wrong. But if they publicly say, hey, look, we value our um, patch deal at $12 million. The third party comes in and says, hey, they're right. The patch deal is worth $12 million. And then my company comes in and says, okay, here's your $12 million. What's wrong with that? You know what I'm saying? Like, why, why can't I promote my, you know what I'm saying, third party brand? Um, and even if it was a little sticky to say, like, it was, the Spencer logo, right? But this has nothing to do with it. This is like literally my app. Like I just happen to be obviously a co-founder of this app. Um, so it wasn't going to be, you know, me personally buying it just to put like Spencer Dinwiddie on the, on the patch to be facetious. It was, it's literally a, a business, right? Like 
um, and in the nation's capital, 14 I played for, like right down the street from Capitol Hill, like, you know, it, 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 it had a certain amount of impact being cryptocurrency uh, forward and all that other stuff. So um, I was very disappointed in that, in that uh, ruling, but, you know, it's part of the game. Like, I'm not going to sacrifice my job just to like prove a point because people were asking if I would like, you know, get lawyers involved and blah, blah. And it's like, bro, like there, there's bigger fish to fry and, and I have a season to be focused on. I'm not going to, you know, be a distraction in that manner. Like it just doesn't make sense. But I, I definitely don't like that rule because there, there wasn't any um, ill intention there. It, it literally was something to push a legitimate business forward. Do you think you'd be allowed to sponsor another team's jersey then if it wasn't the team you were currently employed by? No. Um, so NBA team, I can't do it. But we've had a lot of WNBA um, and MLB, I believe, actually reach out. We've had, we've had, we've had quite a few teams reach out after uh, the story broke. You think the kind of lines are going to get blurred, though, given that, for example, say if you're LeBron James for example, and you were re-signing your deal with Nike and like the deal he did with Beats by Dre, they gave him upfront capital, but also stocks or shares in the company itself. Do you think then that would start blurring the lines if there were businesses that you had shares of but weren't the sole owner or founder of? Would you still encounter the same problems? Um, I mean, I think it depends on how many shares and what type of shareholder you are, if you're a minority or majority. Um, you know, so I, I think there's, again, like lines there that would have to be, um, um, discussed. But I think at the end of the day, like the main thing is like, if you're paying market value for something, you shouldn't be restricted from being able to pay it. Like whether I'm a majority minority, whatever it is, like, you know, I, I could have, uh, you know, some shares in Geico, right. A publicly traded company. And then if they buy the Wizards patch, like, it's fine, right? But because I'm the majority shareholder, it's not, right? But at the end of the day, they set the price. Like, if I'm paying market value, this should not be an issue. You know what I'm saying? If I'm, and, and if a third party agrees this is market value, it should not be an issue. It only becomes an issue if I'm paying, like, a dollar or whatever it is. And, you know, so basically they just give me the patch because I'm their, you know, player. It's an interesting position to be in and to even have these ideas is really quite forward thinking. I know there's a few guys in the league that have these kind of business interests and do a lot of stuff, you know, off the court when it comes to that side of things. Um, do you ever see, because I always think about it like this, that somewhere down the line in the future that the NBA could possibly progress to a point where the majority of teams are actually owned by players. For example, I always have this theory that LeBron is going to retire and then go and buy the Cleveland Cavaliers or how Kevin Garnett wanted to buy the Minnesota Timberwolves. Do you yeah. see that as ever happening down the line and the NBA being owned by former players? That's tough to say um, because that would involve the owners wanting to sell, right? So it's a, it's a little bit of like chicken egg. I think with business savvy, with the ambition that current players have, I definitely think you will have more uh, players not just interested in ownership, but capable of doing it, right? So not just the Michael Jordans and LeBrons, but you're going to see KG. I mean, shoot, you'll probably see Steph Curry and uh, Kevin Durant. And, you know, these guys make uh, enough money to now be in that caliber of wealth to be in that conversation. It also depends on if the owners are 
you know, willing to sell. So it's, it's, it's a two part question. Um, so that I can't really, really answer well, but I think there will be a lot more players that are just in general interested in it and, and make a push to do it. And, uh, but it really probably be a long process because a lot of these teams are owned by like what will be just families. You know what I'm saying like, like think about it after the, somebody buys, like for example, Josiah bought the Nets, right? Um, if he doesn't want to sell, like he'll probably pass it down to his boys. You know what I mean? And, and I'm sure they'll have children. So like it, it may, it, in a lot of ways, sometimes it's a family thing. Yeah. I feel it's like the Lakers with the bus family and, and yeah. Jeannie running the show over there and all that. I wanted to ask you about something else that you're doing well, technically on the court, but for me, it was kind of off the court. You recently came out and said that you want to declare to play for the Nigerian national basketball team rather than team USA. Um, I've always said, I've been saying for a while now uh, that if Nigeria could get the players from originally from Nigeria to play for them, they could be the best team in the world. Like sure. yourself, Giannis, DeAndre Ayton, who's, whose father is actually Nigerian. Like you could have so many guys playing for that team. What was your thinking behind that um, wanting to play for Nigeria? Um, I've definitely always wanted to play in the Olympics. Um, so when the invite came through, um, you know, I was, I was hyped to do it. Um, and, and, and to that point, yeah, like you're right. Like I think if we had all the, all the piece that we could possibly have, you know, you Oladipo, Bam, uh, Giannis, like, yeah, no, we, we, we definitely have a shot at, uh, at winning gold for sure. So we're thinking about starting lineup. If you're running the point and we've got Depot at the two, we could have OG Anunobi at the three because he recently yeah. changed from GB to Nigeria. Then Bam at the four or Bam at the five and Giannis at the four five, with yep, Aiden off Giannis. the bench. Man, I think that's a problem for the Team USA because they got no one that can really rebound and block shots. <laughs> there you go. And, and in uh, Euro basketball, like you can knock it off the rim too. So it might get dicey for them. I mean, Nigeria already took that W in the in the Olympic, you know, kind of warm ups. <laughs> like, there you go. Um, you know, so so just going back to a few on the court questions now, because I've had a ton of fans, you know, asking for a bunch of things that they want to know from you. But I feel like the question this season, given that it's the NBA 75th anniversary, don't worry, I'm not going to get you to list off your top 75 of all time. But yeah. who is your Mount Rushmore of NBA players for you personally? Mount Rushmore is four, right? Yeah, I, th I think so. I never did history in school, but I'm, I'm thinking yeah. so. I'm pretty, uh, pretty sure it's four. Uh, that's tough and easy at the same time. Uh, and I'm going to tell you why. I'm, I'm extremely biased. Extremely. Um, born and raised in LA, 93, you know what I mean? Like, so heavy Lakers influence. I think that if you go across high school, college pro, Kareem had the best career of all time. If you go with highest peak, Michael Jordan, six and oh, right. If you go with my favorite player, Kobe, right. And then the best player ever to play my position, Magic. So that would be my Mount Rushmore. So like I said, heavy Lakers influence. Those would be my reasonings behind it. Um, but yeah. I feel you. You recently switched your jersey from number eight to number 26. 
in honor yep. of, of his course, the late great Kobe Bryant. And 26th is your son's birthday, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so yeah, so my son was born, born on April 20th and I was born on April 6th. So I just okay. combined the numbers. That's, that's beautiful, man. Um, do you have a Kobe story? I know a lot of guys around the league have a story from their interactions with Kobe or just something that stood out from his career when you were growing up, um, that really inspired you. Um, I mean, like I said, he, he got in the league in 96, I was born in 93. So I've, I grew up with his career. So pretty much every iconic Laker moment I watched it, you know what I'm saying? And, and that's all 81 points. We shot against the Suns, um, multiple championships, obviously. I mean, and, and also not just him. I mean, Robert Ory shot like a, a real true Lakers fan, but Kobe by far my favorite. Um, but no, I mean, I, I've definitely been on record saying the most impactful thing for me was, uh, you know, him telling me that I was playing at all-star level um, when I, when I saw him before we played the Hawks that, uh, that night. So, you know, it was, uh, it was crazy for me because it was a situation where you felt like uh, your, your idol truly saw you, you know what I mean? Like, like, and you earned, earned a certain amount of respect. So, um, yeah, I mean, that was, that was, that was a, that was a surreal moment for me, for sure. Well, this year or this season, NBA Top Shot, you know, we've talked a little bit about crypto. Let's talk a little bit about NFTs. NBA Top Shot is now not only putting out current moments, they're putting out the 0506 season and they're going to be adding more retrospective seasons. So that means someone's going to own the NFT of Kobe Bryant, 81st point in that game against the Raptors and all these other classic moments from NBA history. And, you know, I saw a tweet from you a while back um, and you said, you know, call in 2021, but in 2017 with kind of a questioning emoji with regards to NBA players being connected to cryptocurrency. I wanted to know what your thoughts are on the whole NBA Top Shot. Um, shoot, I'm an early investor in Dapper Labs and Top Shot, so I'm a big fan. I think, um, you know, to dumb it down, I mean, I feel like it's it's the new age of uh, collectibles and basketball cards and things like that. Everything evolves, obviously. But there's just going to be a lot more utility uh, with, with these moments uh, being able to be uh, collected and, and, and traded. So, you know, it's going to be it's a it's a whole new world, man. Like there's no other way to say it. But I, I think it's exciting where this kind of digital revolution is going to take us. I saw something really interesting that I'd love your thoughts on. It was Lamelo Ball and his first run of NFTs where he put out a certain number of NFTs at different price points, you know, different tiers, so bronze, silver, gold. And then you could exchange his NFT for tangible items. So you could trade in your NFT for a pair of signed sneakers or tickets to a game, et cetera, et cetera. And then when that happens, the NFTs burn. So the remaining ones become more and more rare. What do you think of a player that young coming up with a model like that so early in their career? I think it's dope. Um, I think, uh, excuse me, sorry. I think everybody kind of, uh, in terms of business-wise, needs to kind of spread their wings and try things, especially if there's relatively low risk, you know, things where you can use your likeness um, in a controlled fashion so you don't have reputation risk, um, see if it makes money, works for you, all the other stuff. Um, I think what makes Top Shot more effective than, like, the one-off uh, NFTs because uh, it establishes a market so you can trade apples to apples. And so that's kind of what I talked about with Galaxy and the social tokens. Like, you know, I'll be able to be traded 
for LeBron, but also for Joe Blow down the street. You know what I'm saying? Like, you'll be able to create communities, but because of the interface, it'll be an apples-to-apples type of system, whereas, you know, LaMelo's one-off NFT may not have enough liquidity or trading pairs um, to where you can accurately kind of, like, uh, move it around. So, you know, it'll be interesting because in, in those situations, pretty much you're buying it for either the long-term hold speculation or because you actually want the physical good. But without the utility, it doesn't have anywhere to kind of move fluidly. Now, with NFTs, is that something that the Galaxy app would be able to facilitate at some point down the road? If I was a creator on the Galaxy app and I wanted to create some NFTs, would I be able to facilitate the sale of them via the app to my fan base? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. NFTs are part of the Galaxy project. So remember, like we're, we're built on blockchain. We have a very... Like I said, Web2 interface, so it's familiar, but um, it, it's all the, the underpinnings and the and the framework and the railroad tracks are all Web3. It's designed to take us into that future and be able to grow and scale with us. So, um, you know, yeah, NFTs are, are a big part of it. If you could own the Top Shot moment for three plays in NBA history, which three plays would you want to own serial number number one for those moments? Ooh. Um, well, you got you got to do Michael Jordan's uh, shot in Utah. Um, again, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do the Homer picks. I'm gonna go Kobe's 81, but then also his 60th. Yeah, you know what I'm so those are those those would be crazy moments. And what about you personally? Like one moment from your career would it be your first bucket, or was there you know oh, a nah. huge shot that you? Now nah, my 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 favorite. That's tough, actually. No, so I have two. I have two. Okay. My, I have two. My my favorite game winners of my career was the first game winner in Detroit, just because of. But that was more personal. It was kind of a wild shot, uh, kind of floater over over Drummond. Um, but it's just because that's where I started my career, and I told him I was going to come back and have a game winner and all the other stuff, and got up and did the gladiator, are you not entertained thing? Like it was. It was a crazy, like, personal moment. You know what I mean? Um, but I would say probably the biggest game winner in my career was uh, right before the shutdown. Last game before the shutdown, uh, when we were in L.A., and I hit um, one in Staples Center against the Lakers. Uh, yeah. And, like, my whole family's there and all that other stuff. So um, that one would probably be number one um, from a collector's or um, value perspective. I would assume that, like, a game winner against the Lakers probably means more. But from a personal perspective – the uh, first one in Detroit um, probably mean the most. Man, you're a dope business mind off the court and, you know, always forward thinking. And one of the, you know, the big influences on me when it comes to business was uh, Nipsey Hussle, uh, who invested in FollowCoin, a business based in Amsterdam. I don't know if you've heard about them, where yeah. you can follow your favorite influencers or celebrities or investors and you can invest in what they're investing in at the same time. Uh, but for me, you know, Nipsey Hussle's had a huge impact on my life in terms of just the way I think, business moves, etc. So every day I listen, I listen to Nipsey Hussle's music every day. I wanted to know what's bumping in your headphones on a daily basis. What's on your rotation on your playlist right now? Um, I would say in the last week or two, I've been listening to Roddy Rich and, uh, and uh, 21 Savage. But overall, like, like staples, 
are probably like Drake, J. Cole, Nipsey Hussle. Like those are probably staples. Um, but yeah, last like week or two has been a lot of Roddy Rich and the 21 Savage. I feel you. We talked about your Mount Rushmore of NBA players, but if you had to create an all-time starting lineup, including yourself, to maximize your skill set, so not the best players, but the players that you think would best complement your game, who would be the other four guys on the court with you that you'd want to play alongside from any era of the NBA? Oh, um, yeah, I mean, I don't I don't think that my the, the lineups would be all too different, right? I would want spacing. Um, my five man would still be Shaq. Only only dude you can't guard, right? Like I, I can dump it down, play pick and roll, whatever. Um, hmm. So Shaq over Kareem, because Kareem was on your Mount Rushmore. Yeah, so I think Kareem high school college pros had the best career ever by by yeah. far. Like, I don't I don't think it's even close. And I think people calling Michael the greatest player ever is a huge disservice to Kareem when you look at the totality of a basketball career. Um, I think when people talk about Michael being the greatest, they talk about the highest peak. Like he had the 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 highest sustained level of ex- excellence. You know what I'm saying? That six and zero run, boom, can't be topped. But like Kareem was the man for 30 years. You know what I mean? Like, that's tough. That is absolutely insane. Um, now I pick Shaq's my center. Um, I would just want, like, supreme amounts of, like, spacing and shooting and stuff. Uh, so I'd probably have, like, Clay, great defender, shoot it. Um, we'd love to play with Kobe, too, so we'll throw him in there. Um, and then, I mean, probably KD at the four because – I mean, obviously, who who shoot it better than him? So, so you got switchable, switchable lineup, a lot of shooting, good, solid defense. I get to go out there, just run the show, just pass it around, and and you know what I'm saying, ISO the weak defender, and just have a little bit of fun. So, ten seconds left in the fourth quarter, down by two. Who's getting mm-hmm. the ball in their hands? On my team. Yeah. Down by two. I'm throwing it to Cole. Straight. Just yeah. ISO on code. Yeah. Can't go wrong. Can't, can't go wrong. wrong. <laughs> Man, do you, this is the one thing that I always find interesting. Uh, the division between sports media and NBA players that I speak to. Whenever I speak to NBA players about, you know, the greatest players of all time, everyone's got Kobe up there. But, you know, when you talk to somebody's media personalities or, or, or whatever you want to call, I feel like he's often disrespected in some of those lists and some of those rankings. You know, I see some people have him outside the top five. Some people have him outside the top 10. Why do you think that is? For people that have never stepped on the court, right? You have to quantify what you see with numbers, right? It takes some of the feel out of it. Now, numbers are important. They're valuable, right? Um, but they, they're, they're designed to kind of help the regular person make sense of everything that's going on, right? And then the rise of advanced analytics and all this other stuff. Um, but then actually being on the court and playing against these types of guys, you realize that in, sometimes there's no separation between guys. Like you might have a starter and a bench guy and be like, yo, like they're basically the same level. Then how there's a lot of separation between some guys and 
you know, Kobe had his had his flaws, right? Like he shot bad shots, like by analytic standards. Like he shot a lot of turnaround tough twos. Like it is what it is. When you're talking about true ISO killer, like can you stop him one on one? Like, I mean, it speaks for itself. The guys, the guys that played against the man said, like, yo, like he's the best player in the league. We can't stop him. Like this, that, and the third. It's the proof is in that pudding. You know what I mean? Like the guys that go up against you every single day, they have we're we're some of the most prideful human beings in the world. To say like, oh man, I can't stop another man. Like, you know how 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 great that person has to be. You know what I mean? Like, like think even myself, right? All the players that I say that I can't stop are like players that I also don't have to guard. So I don't care. Like, like you're never gonna catch me saying I can't stop Steph Curry. Nah, because I gotta go lace him up and, and and guard him. I'm gonna be chasing his ass all over the floor. But I'll tell you, I can't stop Giannis. He's seven foot, 260. Who cares? Bro, if I matched up on him, bro, that was y'all fault. That's a game plan problem. He's a he's basically a center. I shouldn't be guarding him anyway. So, yeah, you're right. I can't stop him. I can't stop Shaq. You know what I'm saying? I can't stop Hakeem Olajuwon. I don't care about none of that. You're right. I can't guard none of them folks. They all centers. I don't care. But if, you know, you got somebody like Manu Ginobili saying, yo, like, I can't stop Kobe Bryant. Like, that's like me coming up here and saying, yo, I – there's nothing I can do with Dame Lillard. He's got my number. Like, what? That sounds insane. And and Manu Ginobili's not a bum. Manu Ginobili is cold. You know what I'm saying? Like, like that's that's insane to me. So I just think it's it's just such a large disconnect between people that have actually uh, you know, stepped on the floor and people that haven't. And and it's not it's not terrible. Like I understand it. Like you you have to try to quantify things, put them in the numbers. You have to help help help, like, help them help normal people, but then also help the game evolve and make it make sense. You know what I mean? Because that's what we do with life. Like we look for patterns, we look for numbers, we look for things that make life make sense. But sometimes there are things that don't always connect directly with the numbers. And you just got to kind of go off the field and off the flow and understand like people that really do this at an extremely high level say that these people are, 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 are cold. I mean, Mel's another one. They called him a bum and that, and he was out the league and all that stuff. Mel's got to be a, He's at least a top 10 scorer, at least. Easy. Easy. Like, like uh, I want to say top five. I just don't want to be too ambitious because we got Kobe, we got Mike, we got KD. You know what I'm saying? Melo after that is in that conversation. Like, and I'm talking about guard scores. Like, obviously, Kareem, different type of thing. But, like, Kobe, Mike, KD, I – now, now, now Mel's in that conversation. You know what I'm saying? So, like, but you were calling this man a bum. That's crazy. You know what I'm saying? Like, people were calling him a bum on national TV. That's crazy. What is your take on, you know, people who haven't played in the NBA having roles as experts, analysts, journalists, however you want to describe it? What's, what's your take on um, your relationship with the media? Because I know some guys in the league aren't happy with doing a lot of media stuff. They don't really like talking to people. Um, you seem pretty calm with it because we're here talking about it. I never played in the league, but I'm the national broadcaster for the NBA over here in the UK. So what's your take on it? And don't, don't worry about offending me because, you know, everyone's got their opinions. So I'm a, I'm a chill guy, man. Like everybody has their opinions. Everybody has a job to do. You know what I mean? I think um, because players in my position have such large egos and they want to protect those, you know, egos and, and sometimes they're they're fragile, right? So they they get sensitive with some of the things that people are, people say. I think um, you know, the people that are broadcasting can show a greater respect sometimes for the people that are actually out there. 
Because like I said, I mean, I, you're, you're talking to somebody else who lived it. You know what I mean? Like growing up, I wasn't good enough, right? So from, from one years old to let's call it 16, 17, I wasn't good enough. Then I was all of a sudden good enough, 17, 18. I grew, you know what I'm saying? Got better. was going to go D1. Okay, cool. I get to the Pac-12, rock star, right? Basically from the beginning, like second, I was runner up to Tony Roden for freshman of the year. Then I was Pac-12 first team. Then I was going to be a lottery pick, got hurt, whatever. And then for two years in Detroit, everybody said I was a bum. Right. Like, man, you were good from, you know, one to 21 or whatever it is. But from 21 to 23, you were a bum. But then I got to the Nets at 23 or so. And then for five years, oh, man, like you're good again. What the fuck happened? Blah, blah, blah. Like you realize that separation in this thing sometimes can come down to situation can come down to confidence can come down to all these other little nuanced things, not just whether you're good or not. But because we're using these numbers to try to write the entire story, people will say like, hey, like this dude's a, a complete bum. Like, and it's like, yo, like, you don't know what was going on. You know what I'm saying? He could have had a death in the family. He could have been depressed. He could have been, you know what I'm saying? All these things. Like, it, it just, there's so much more to it. And I think living under a microscope, people don't understand. And so you kind of start to feel dehumanized in a sense. And like I said, sometimes guys get sensitive, but you know, the more people can just say, look, the media has a job to do. They're going to do what they do. They're going to try to make it obviously interesting. Um, and we're going to go out there and try to do what we do. You roll with it. Like, what, what, what else can you do? Like, you got to be solid in self. Understand, you know what I'm saying, how your family and your loved ones view you. And if you're, you know, secure in that, then there's nothing that a media person is going to really say that's going to, like, like, kill you you know what i'm saying like it's gonna it's gonna irk you you know what i'm saying no matter what because it's, it's gonna irk you you might feel disrespected all that stuff but it's not gonna sway you to the point where you're like oh man i'm just off all the media like the media is just terrible blah blah like everybody got a job everybody I mean, makes I, I can only speak for myself i just call it how i see it if you have a good game you have a good game if you have a bad game you have a bad game but i feel that oftentimes fans and media lose track of NBA players being actual human beings because you see the way certain situations happen. Like right now, obviously the Ben Simmons situation is what everyone's been talking about for the whole summer. Right. Oh, yeah. And, you know, of course, if I'm doing a show and we're talking about the Sixers, I can talk about how his lack of shooting is going to impact their game plan on the floor. But then when people are questioning now, why, why is he not turning up? Why is he refusing to play, et cetera? I'm saying, well, of course he wants to leave Philly because the fans booed him out of the arena. You think he can even live a normal life now? You think he can just go to the shops and and buy buy his groceries without fans booing him or saying stuff? And at the end of the day, you guys are celebrities, but yeah. you're still human beings. If I followed you around all day, I said, Spencer, you're a bum. Spencer, you can't play. You can't shoot. It eventually it would start getting to you, no matter yeah, how you know, no matter how secure you are in yourself. So. Just before we wrap up, I wanted to know what your thoughts were on the situation with Ben and the Philadelphia 76ers um, and what you would do if you were in that position. Oh, that's tough. Uh, whew, that, yeah, that's, that's, that's tough. Um, I don't know Ben personally. Uh, so it is, it is hard to comment. Um, I think that every man has the right to stand up for what they believe in. 
And if he believes he is making the right decision, then who am I to judge that? Um, I don't know the Philly organization either, so it's hard to comment on on that. I mean, it's this, yeah. And, and I mean, then also, I don't want to say what I would do in a situation because I don't want to snitch on myself. So, like, <laughs> you, you put me in a bind with this last question. Can we can we do a different last question? Uh, we're going to circle back to the original question because you gave me two. If you were commissioner of the NBA and you could change three things, what would be the third one that you change? All the all the Ben Simmons money would have to go to charity. I'm not I'm not letting the, the billionaire just take the money back. I'm I'm making all the fine money got to go to charity. That's that's the other thing I'm doing. So Ben, you, if you don't show up, you don't get paid. But also, I ain't just giving it back to the uh, back to the billionaire. I'm giving it to charity. Like you going there, there's some charity out there that's gonna get blessed with 35 million dollars. I think that every fine in the NBA should, you know, that that should just be the case with any fine because you know the owners are already billionaires. They probably don't even notice a little. 50 grand or whatever. It must be nice. It must, it must be nice, man. Must I can't miss it. <laughs> anyway, Spencer, thank you so much for your time. I'm super excited to see what happens with the Galaxy app. Before you go, tell the people where they can get it, App Store, what they need to do to get involved and what they can expect from the future of the app. Um, Galaxy.com, you can sign up for beta access. I think we've got, you know, several hundred people in the app right now, stress testing it, doing all that as it ramps up. It's in test flight, so soon it'll actually be in the app store. Um, you know, I'm, shoot, I'm ready to get started. Like I said, it'll feel very Web 2, very familiar to all y'all, but we're building it up with all the Web 3 infrastructure and looking to take it to the future. We want everybody to uh, be able to monetize themselves at the end of the day and, uh, you know, create their own community and create their economy. So we're looking forward to doing big things. Well, one last question for you. If in 12 months from now we circle the block and you come back on the podcast, what is 12 months from now Spencer Dinwiddie can look back at having achieved in the previous 12 months? What are the goals for this season on and off the court? What are the milestones you'd like to hit? Um, 12 months from now. On the court, we will have made the playoffs. Brad will have signed the Supermax. Um, you know, we're how, just, far you, how far are you going in the playoffs? We will play that by ear because that, that depends on cohesiveness. We got to get our guys back healthy. We got to, you know, Rui's got to come back. We got, we got a lot of, you know, growing that we have to do. But we definitely don't want to be a team that misses the playoffs. That's that's something we don't want to do um, at all. Uh, but like I said, Brad signed a Supermax as far as on the court. Off the court, um, Cax is a unicorn. And I'm a billionaire under 30. So, there we go. Hey, man, listen, I'm wishing you all the best for your goals on the court and off the court. But on the court, I'm a Boston Celtics fan. So if you come up against the Celtics in the playoffs, I'm going to be real. I'm not going to be rooting for you. But against anyone else, I got your back. Don't worry. Uh, yes. Thank you so much for taking the time, Spencer. I really appreciate you coming on. Everyone at home, make sure you go and get involved with the Galaxy app. It's a dope project. You might even see your boy Mo on there as well. We're going to have to get some things figured out. I'll be on there for you guys soon too. But Spencer, until next time, may the marathon continue. Get buckets. Thank you, brother.